Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Tonight, all the stories are true, so you can't tell yourself it's only a story tonight as you drift off to sleep. This week, we're sponsored by Care Of. Please remember to use my code whenever you visit any of our sponsors. It really helps keep them wanting to come back. I have a couple of little things to go over before we start tonight's episode. First up, I will be doing my first live stream on October 10th at 9pm Eastern Standard Time. In order to view the stream, you need to join the Facebook page called Last Profiler on the Left. It's run by Whitney Kurtz Ogilvie, who is a friend and author of all three tales in the episode titled Patient Care. And again, that is Wednesday, October 10th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the page is called Last Profiler on the Left. I'll be reading a couple of classic spooky tales and going over one true crime story that I think my listeners will find particularly interesting. Next, there was a problem with my P.O. box and I had to be issued a new number. The new address, if you'd like to send anything and please don't feel pressured to, is P.O. Box 8224, Mission Hills, California, 91346. Our first story is by Julie McNeely. This one is a trip, and I definitely won't be swimming in the ocean anytime soon. I have thalassophobia. This is defined as an intense and persistent fear of the sea or of sea travel. It can also include fear of being in large bodies of water, fear of vast emptiness of the sea, of sea waves, and fear of distance from land. Most people find this odd considering I grew up on an island in the Pacific Northwest. My relationship with the ocean is one of love and hate. I find it beautiful and mysterious and terrifying at the same time. I can ride a ferry or a boat like riding in a car and I can even swim in the shallows. It's what's beyond there that scares me. This experience is what I feel is responsible for my fear. I was 10. My grandparents lived right on the beach where the ferry docks. When I say right on the beach, I mean there was only a 20 foot long yard and a stone bulkhead separating their house from the shore. I grew up digging for clams when the tide was low, building forts from driftwood and swimming in the freezing cold waters of the Puget Sound. I had no fear of the sea. I guess it also helped my parents' home was also very close to the ocean. This particular morning, my grandfather had recruited me to help him repair one of the crab pots he had set the previous week. 
It was early, and there was a layer of fog covering the water. I hopped into the small rowboat and buckled my life jacket as my grandfather pushed us out into the sea. I let my fingers slide across the top of the water as we moved farther and farther out. The sea became darker and darker. Soon I could no longer see the bottom. We stopped at the bright orange and red buoys that marked our pots. While my grandpa pulled up the broken one, I stared over the side of our small boat. I could see a small school of fish swimming just below the surface. My grandpa asked me for some pliers. I reached down in the bag of tools in front of me and pulled out some pliers. As I handed them to my grandpa, I looked over the edge of the boat again. The school of fish had scattered quickly. I looked closer into the darkness and saw two eyes staring back at me. I knew what fish eyes looked like, and these were not the eyes of a fish. They looked human. They were large and wide. They were coming closer, rising from the depths of the water. They looked wild and horrible. I jerked back, which caused the boat to rock. My grandpa grabbed the back of my life jacket to stop me from falling back over the edge. Whoa, kiddo. What's got you spooked? I pointed into the water and just said, Eyes. My grandpa looked at me quizzically and then peered over the side of the boat where I had been. Now, my grandpa was an Irish World War II vet, covered in tattoos and a former boxer. Not a lot rattled the guy. When he looked back at me, I saw the distress on his weathered face. Without a word, he threw the crab pot he had been working on back into the water. Jules, don't look into the water, okay? And keep your hands in your lap. The tone of his voice was low and serious, but I could tell by the way he called me by my nickname that he was trying to keep me calm. I was the baby of the family, and my grandpa had always been fiercely protective of me. He rode back to the shore faster than I thought a 76-year-old man could. Of course, my curiosity got the better of me, and I glanced into that dark water. About a foot below the surface, I saw what looked like black hair floating, moving through the water. I yelped and felt tears rolling down my cheeks. When the boat hit the rocky sand, he jumped out and pulled the boat out of the water. I was too scared to move. My grandpa picked me up and carried me up the stone steps to the yard. He didn't set me down until we walked through the front door. My grandma was standing in the living room with a concerned look on her face. Sweet Jesus, Richard. What is wrong? You're as white as a sheet. He set me down and knelt down next to me. Go in your grandma's room and watch TV, okay? He said to me, ruffling my hair and wiping a tear from my cheek. I ran into her bedroom and jumped on her big bed, where their black cat Dynamite was sleeping. 
and cuddled up next to him as he purred. I strained my ears to listen to my grandparents going back and forth in the living room. Barbara, they were human eyes. Like some goddamn banshee rising out of the depths of hell. Scared Julie half to death. My grandmother didn't say anything. I am not taking any of the kids out on the boat. Not anymore. I tried to focus on the TV. I tried not to think about those eyes. What that thing could have possibly been. I had nightmares for weeks after that. I, as I got older, the memory seemed to fade. It still lurked in the back of my mind, but not as strongly as it did before. I often wondered if I had really seen it at all. If, in my adolescence, I had let my imagination get away from me. When I was a junior in high school, my grandfather passed away. Before he did, I remember sitting in the living room with him. He rocked back and forth in his old chair as he carved the hunk of wood in his hand. Hey, do you remember that time we went out to fix the crab pot? And we saw that thing in the water. I have expected him to look at me like I was crazy, but he didn't. He stopped rocking. He didn't look up from his carving, but I could see his facial expression change. Yeah, but there was something I didn't tell you at the time. Because you were too young and I didn't want to spook you any more than you already were. When I was pulling the boat in, I saw a head poking out of the water. Just the top. It was covered in black hair and those eyes were staring right at me. That's why I picked you up out of the boat and carried you. I didn't want a chance that thing snatching you. I sat there in disbelief. Even at 83 and having survived two heart attacks and a stroke. This still shook him to the core. Not too long after this conversation, my grandpa passed away. And as I said in the beginning of the story, I have a love-hate relationship with the ocean. It's beautiful and mysterious. But I am sure that its depths harbor dark things that we cannot even begin to fathom. Whenever I ride the ferry, which is often, I find myself staring into the inky abyss of the sound and expect to see those eyes staring back. I hope you have something to warm you up. Grab a blanket and some hot chocolate because our next story from the now famous Chloe Griffin Rush takes place on a snowy mountain in the middle of the woods.
I had never been a believer in much. Once you figure out Santa Claus is fake, how are you supposed to believe in things like ghosts, aliens, even God? Growing up in a small, predominantly white Christian town was hard for me as an atheist child. So many of my friends went to church youth group, Sunday mass, and various missionary trips. I didn't. I didn't want to be lectured on good and evil, the devil, and Jesus. I didn't believe in it. My best friend Carrie and I were 13 when she invited me to her church. We were having a sleepover on Saturday, and if I didn't want to wake up super early to go home, I had to attend Mass. It wasn't a big deal. I had been to church before. We spent most of the morning making silly faces at each other and giggling behind our hands anyway. The annual ski trip is happening next weekend. If you still haven't signed up, please do so in the church office, droned an elderly pastor. Carrie looked at me, all excited. Do you think your parents would let you go with me? She asked in a hurried whisper. I shrugged. I don't ski. I don't do sports. I don't really go outside. But what the hell, I thought. I'll give it a shot. Next thing I knew, I was in Carrie's mom's green minivan, speeding down the highway and up into the mountains. We pulled into this campground lot, Camp Norway, deep in this wooded area of Northern California. The air was crisp and chilled. You could really breathe up here. The wooden cabins were old and rustic, each filled with a few bunk beds and a dingy sink. Carrie and I spent the first day at the snowboard park. Neither of us was very skilled, but at least by the end of it, she could stand on her board longer than I could. We laughed until we couldn't breathe every time we fell into a snowbank. When we got back to the camp, we spent the evening making up scary stories about the infamous and fictional Fythewoven, a Viking ghost who haunted the grounds and could shapeshift into a large group of moths. Kid stuff, being goofy, having fun on a ski trip weekend. It all seemed so normal. Sunday morning was for the sermon in the mess hall. I wasn't looking forward to another hour of listening to someone go on and on about how non-believers go to hell. Carrie obviously felt the same way and suggested we go exploring. We waited until everyone had filled the hall and carefully tiptoed around to the outside of the building. Where should we go? I asked eagerly. Carrie pointed to the woods and we set off. It was gorgeous the further we got from the campsite. The snow clung to the ground like a fluffy blanket and crunched softly beneath our boots. The trees were bare but clustered tightly together. In hindsight, it was incredibly stupid to wander into unknown territory without any way of knowing how we'd get back to the group. But we kept walking. We were 13 years old. We didn't worry about silly things like that. We came to a clearing, a large, expansive field, surrounded by a perfect circle of trees. Everything looked so peaceful, so untouched by human hands. Nature in its purest form, except for one thing. 
In the middle of this field stood a trailer. It had rusted over the years, and there was a broken-down car attached to it. Someone had abandoned it here in the middle of this secluded field. The hair started to stand on the back of my neck. This feeling of overwhelming anxiety washed over me. Why was it here? Who left it? Where were they now? Questions kept running through my mind as my feet started walking towards the door. Carrie didn't seem too perturbed. She was always the brave one. She flung the door open carelessly, not knowing what either of us would find. It was empty. No one there. Yellowed newspapers and magazines littered the floor of the trailer. Dusty flannel shirts and old denim jeans with holes and grease stains had been left in piles. The strangest thing was the industrial-sized jar of mayonnaise on one of the seats. We found a stack of torn-up romance novels. You know, the cheesy ones with the illustrated Fabio holding some bare-breasted vixen. Something you'd get from a drugstore in the 80s. We grabbed one of the novels and went to sit on the hood of the car. Carrie gave exaggerated readings of all the naughty, sexy parts. We sat on this random car cackling like any little kid would. Then I heard it. Crunching of the snow. Only it sounded louder and ominous. It was strange. I knew I could hear it, but I had no idea what direction it was coming from. My skin started to crawl. Something wasn't right. Something felt wrong. I could feel someone in the trees, but I couldn't see where they were coming from. Carrie seemed more anxious about getting back to camp before her mom realized we were missing. We didn't have cell phones or watches or even a map. No one knew we were out here. The idea filled me with cold dread. Carrie, let's get out of here. I think I hear something. I tried to keep my voice even, but the high pitch gave me away. You think old Boo Radley is going to come back for his trailer? She laughed heartily. The laughter stopped abruptly as we both heard a large stick snap. It was a sickly sound. Like bones breaking. Only a pair of heavy... Large boots could have made that sound. We hopped down from the car, leaving the dirty book behind on the hood. We took off for the way we came. It wasn't too hard since we could clearly see our footprints in the snow. And in an insane moment of panic, I looked at her and said, The book! We should put it back inside! Are you kidding me? Why?! She shouted at my back as I turned to grab the novel and toss it into the open door of the trailer. When I shut it closed, that's when I noticed them. Large footprints leading up to the trailer. But coming from the other side. How can that be? I waved Carrie forward, motioning for her to keep going before she could also notice the mysterious prints. 
We followed our own footsteps back through the woods, moving much quicker than when we had wandered in. We heard the crunching sound again, and again. It was picking up speed. It was hurrying towards us. In the bright daylight, I glanced around behind me. Nothing. Where was it coming from? I grabbed Carrie's hand and took off in a clumsy sprint. Our snow boots were not adept for running, and our thick layers of clothing slowed us down even more. I could feel sweat beating on my forehead. My breathing became ragged. The footsteps were gaining on us, yet I couldn't see anyone or anything capable of making such a sound. Fear was suffocating. But we kept on pushing our bodies forward, out through the beautiful and peaceful woods that had turned into a never-ending maze of panic. Finally, we saw the buildings of the camp. Relief crashed over me, as we finally made it into the mess hall where the church attendees were pouring out into the entryway. Carrie's mother came to meet us in an annoyed look on her face. You girls both missed the service, she said rather huffily. She was either completely ignoring the fact that we looked terrified and exhausted, or it just didn't show. Without skipping a beat, Carrie looked at her and said confidently, We decided to appreciate God in our own way and walk through the woods a bit. Except, there was nothing godly about that field. I couldn't shake off the feeling that we may have escaped something truly evil. Next up, Alex Vialta has graciously sent us some eerie things he encountered in the Air Force while in the jungles of Okinawa. I arrived in Okinawa, Japan, when I was 19 years old. I had enlisted in the Air Force two years earlier, and after a short stay in both Texas and Utah, I moved to the island where... I would not only finish my time in the military, but the place that would change my disbelief in the paranormal. While still in Utah, many of my co-workers who were previously stationed there would talk about the delicious food, places to visit, and, to my surprise, the ghost haunting the bomb dump. To clarify, the bomb dump, formerly known as the munitions storage area, as its name implies, the part of the base where bombs, missiles, small arms are stored. These are typically located miles from the main base and very isolated, just in case an explosive operation went south. Our bomb dump was located in the jungle. It was riddled with snakes, mongoose, and humidity so thick that it would fog up your glasses as soon as you stepped outside. Apart from the wildlife and elements, there was also relics from the Battle of Okinawa, one of the worst battles from World War II. 
along with the deaths of over 80,000 American and Japanese forces. There was an estimated 150,000 Okinawans who committed suicide. Many of the Okinawans considered the area where the bomb dump was located to be sacred. This may have been due to the number of shrines, bunkers, and even signs warning personnel that there were still unexploded ordnance from World War II in the adjacent jungle. As I got settled in and became familiar with the labyrinth of building within this area, I began exploring some of the locations which made this part of the base so unique. I would spend hours after work taking photos of some of the relics and overall beauty the bomb dump had to offer. Before long, Okinawa became home. Both of my experiences with the paranormal happened during training exercises. These pretend wars were done to make sure that in the event we needed to defend the base, our production, attention to detail, and vigilance all met Air Force standards. Exercises sucked, plain and simple. We'd work between 12 to 14 days straight, 12 plus hour shifts. During this time, we would need to have our chem gear, gas mask, gloves, protective clothing on us in the event we would get quote-unquote, attacked. My first experience was at the end of a shift. We were working on re-warehousing a building, which meant pulling all the munitions out and then placing them back inside. Needless to say, shift change happened and there were still munitions on the loading area. We could not leave them out, so I volunteered to stay behind and guard them until morning shift came in. As I sat against the building... Wishing I hadn't been so selfless, I felt as if someone was watching me. I looked over to my right, and at the corner of the building, I saw a man poke his head out, not once, but twice. The second time really freaked me out as he stared at me for about two seconds. From what I could see, he was Japanese and was wearing an outdated uniform. What was strange about this man was that he was not vivid. It was as if he had a grainy sepia glow to him and was almost transparent. My first thought was, is this a test to check my readiness? This did occur during these exercises. There would be people placed on the base that didn't belong to ensure that we were hypervigilant. I immediately stood up and screamed, Hey! I began to chase the man. When I reached the corner, there was no sign of him. I continued to sweep the perimeter to no avail. Most of the buildings had a 10-foot fire break, followed by jungle so thick that you could not walk more than a couple of feet. This, coupled with the fact that there is only one road in and out of the building, meant this person simply disappeared. When the new crew came in to relieve me, I went up to the staff sergeant and told him about my experience. He laughed at first and told me that I was not the first person to see, in his words, some weird shit out here. The more I spoke about this to other people in the bomb dump, 
the more I heard about similar experiences while working in that building. What bothered me most about this experience was that he popped his head out twice. Honestly, if it had only happened once, I would have told myself it was fatigue or just something out of the corner of my eye. My second encounter occurred the following year. Me and my buddy were verifying locations of munitions in different warehouses. As we were approaching one of the buildings, we heard sirens followed by Alarm Red Mop 4. This basically meant an attack was in progress. Find shelter now and put on your gas mask. Given that we were still in the vehicle, we had two options. Sprint to the building or jump out of the truck, which is considered a target, and sit in the ditch on the side of the street. We decided to sprint into the building, but did not have a chance to flip the breaker for the lights as it was behind the building. So we're in this dark building, waiting to hear those magical words telling us the attack was over and we could breathe like humans again. As I laid on a pallet of bombs in this dark room, which is more comfortable than one would imagine, the only light coming into the warehouse was from the open door. That's when I heard... as if someone was walking on the loading dock. This made no sense, because we were in the middle of an attack, and no one should have been outside. I looked towards the door to see a shadow figure walk across the door. At this point, I looked over at my buddy and asked him, Did you see that? He responded, Did I see what? I said, The thing that just walked across the door. He responded, Yeah. I saw that too. Almost immediately, the sirens came back on, telling us we were clear to return to normal duty. At this point, I went and swept the building, while my buddy ran out to the road to see if there were any signs of a vehicle. We both came up empty-handed. Again, this makes no sense, as there was nowhere for whatever was outside the warehouse to go. The weird thing was that Everyone had a story, and before long, we were joking about the shadow figure that was coming after us. I think it's typical for service members to deal with difficult or frightening experiences with humor. One thing is for sure, that island showed me the power of the spirit world, and it will forever be a place I respect, love, and fear. This next one is for the skeptics out there who don't believe in ghosts and ghouls. Brandy Blush tells us about her brush with what could have been a very dangerous stranger. I think it was 2014, and it was December, I remember. I lived about a half a mile from a gas station which has since closed, rest in peace, Maverick at protest in Boise, and I walked to get a slushie. Yeah, in December, I know. I'm getting my slushie, and I see this guy in my periphery, but I don't think anything of it because I remember this gas station was fairly busy, but he gets in my eye line, and I see his mouth move, so I take my headphones off. I do the, mm, what? And he asked if my hair is naturally that color. 
As it was about a Pennywise orange at the time, I say, No, it's a box. And he goes, Oh, well, it looks really nice on you. Like, okay, dude, just trying to buy a fucking slushie the week before Christmas. Heck off. So I pay and head outside, and he was leaning against the side of his truck, and he stops me again. He asks how old I am, and I don't think to fucking lie, so I immediately go, 21? Which does put this in 2014. Now I remember. And he kind of smiled and went, good, good. (laughs) Not good. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) I can go to bars now. And he laughs with me and goes, you know, you're pretty. Have you considered modeling? I'd love to model. There's a lot going on with this face. I got legs like a flamingo, but this is a fucking gas station in Boise, Idaho. So I'm like, mm, what? He introduces himself as Anthony. Hi, Anthony. I'm Brandy. He's from California. I know this because he says it about 30 fucking times over the next uh, seven minutes. And he's a photographer, always looking for new models. Like, all right, dude, just tell me you need $2,000 from me and you'll make me a star or some bullshit. Instead, he says, he's not like other photographers where he doesn't work with agencies. What he does, he explains, is he keeps his own girls. He takes lots of pictures of his girls, dozens of photos, and he shows them to his clients. I'll never forget. He goes, and then I let these guys bid on my girls. Okay? He keeps telling me he'll take me to California and let his clients bid on me. Meanwhile, I'm having fucking flashbacks to take in at this point, and finally he winks at me and goes, Come on, Brandy. Don't you want to get out of Boise? See some of that California sun? I politely say, no, thank you. And he starts to talk again. And I just go, no, thank you. As I head out of the parking lot, I ran home. Our next story is by Kayla Vandenbosch. And it's about my favorite paranormal oddity. And that is time slips. I can't get enough of them. They give me the ultimate chills. Next to scary stories about space, that is. Here it is. You know, one thing I've always struggled with is finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. Plus, I am not the best with numbers. But now, I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month so I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. 
Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. And I know you do not have the time or mental bandwidth to deal with customer service, but don't worry, they'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 5 hundred million dollars in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. That's rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. Rocketmoney.com slash scare you to sleep. I am not a great writer and this story is hard to follow because it didn't make any damn sense even when it was actually happening. Anywho, before I start a bit of background, at the time of the weirdness, I was with another person who remembers things the same way I do and doesn't really want to talk publicly. We were both about 16. We were sober. The area we were in was familiar to both of us, and nothing like this has ever happened before or since. I've had lots of other weird encounters that I don't think are related, but she hasn't. Both of us grew up to lead pretty normal adult lives. She still goes to this area very regularly, and nothing like this ever happened again. Here goes. If you have any questions, ask away. I have lots too, to be honest. Neither of us get lost or turned around easily. Actually, I'm a whiz at corn mazes. So Cherie and I were going to pick up Cherie's boyfriend Brad one night. It was spring or summer, and it was after dark already. The weather was nice, but there was some low-laying fog. I'm not super clear on all the details because it was a very long time since I was 16. The road he lived on was right outside of Tawfield, Alberta. They had been dating a few months by this time, and we were all from around there and knew him and the area pretty well. The road was a mostly straight rural road with a few trees. You could see a few houses and barns, but most driveways were marked by signs with the family's last names on them or the farm's company name. To get to this road, you turned off the highway onto a gravel range road that's marked by a number. If you drove too far, you would end up connecting to another highway. So if we drove straight past his house, we'd end up on a different highway. The entire road would probably take an hour to drive if you just drove straight. I'm not sure exactly when we started to notice that things were wrong, but it wasn't long. Usually once you turned onto the gravel, Brad's place was about 15 minutes up the road. We had been going much longer than that before either of us spoke up. Neither of us spoke much at all. Cherie and I had been through a few hairy situations, and we were both pretty good at keeping the other calm. Things got heavy when she asked if she should turn around. 
I said no, because if we kept going straight, we'd eventually have to hit either highway. We never did stop the car or turn it around. We only drove straight. The main reason we were both losing our shit was because all the houses and landmarks on this very familiar road were all appearing in the wrong order, and sometimes we were seeing them repeating again and again, almost like the Bugs Bunny background. It was about three hours before we hit the same highway we had originally come from. So somehow, we had ended up facing the wrong direction without ever turning around. We never did see Brad's house, but all the other neighbors with their last names on the signs and familiar old barns were there. Now that I've been listening to some of the missing 411 cases, I'm wondering if there's some kind of connection there. Cherie ended up marrying Brad. She goes out to his farm all the time, and nothing like that has ever happened since. His property is super haunted, but it doesn't usually make itself disappear. We're continuing our little stay in Canada with a couple of stories from Caroline Blick. Caroline produces some of the most hauntingly beautiful scents for her brand, Hexenacht. I'll put a link in the show notes to her website. Her scents all have cool-ass names like Creaky Floorboards, Mephistopheles, Papa Legba, and my personal favorite, Ecto-1, because it makes me smell like marshmallows and chocolate. This isn't sponsored, by the way. She's just a magical soap and perfume witch who is blowing up the world of smells, and you should check her out. Now here are her spooky stories. In my hometown of Edmonton, Canada, I got a job as a live-in nanny. It wasn't an old house by anyone's standards. Maybe 20 years at the absolute most. My bedroom was set up in the semi-finished basement. There was a dividing wall separating it from the laundry room, plus a walk-in pantry with an opening for a doorway, no actual door, leading into a central living area with a couch, TV, entertainment center, and a bedroom area, no door, on the side of the living area, and a makeshift office with a desk, filing cabinet, and an electrical typewriter to the right. When I moved in, right away, something felt off. Daytime was tolerable, but in the evenings, and certainly in the very late hours, the atmosphere took on an odd, heavy feel. I felt like I was being watched, and if I didn't know for sure otherwise, I could have sworn there was a peephole built into the wall dividing my living area from the laundry room, and there was someone watching me. There wasn't. I would have heard someone coming down the stairs, and because there was no actual door dividing my area from the laundry area, I could see for myself that no one was there. It just felt like it. Constantly. 
As time progressed, I started noticing movement in my peripheral vision. Upright, human-shaped, and adult-sized. Not just one or two, but several, as though they were milling about, like people at a busy intersection. While I could see nothing when I looked straight on, it was extremely clear in my peripheral vision, like flipping a switch. The heaviness would come and go, increasing and decreasing over time, although I don't recall if there was any consistency or pattern to it. At the time, I never thought to track it. During the heavier times, there was a constant feeling of apprehension, like being stalked. Appliances malfunctioned frequently. The electrical typewriter in the makeshift office area to the right of my living space would turn itself on with the familiar sound. I got up to turn the typewriter off, and shortly after sitting back down, it turned itself back on. By this time, I was afraid that it would start typing, so I panicked and unplugged the damn thing. There were several instances of other appliances upstairs turning themselves on. The electric razor in the bathroom was left plugged in, but housed in the bathroom cupboard. That would turn itself on and off intermittently when I was in the upstairs shower. At first I thought it was the buzzing from a bee or wasp, and whenever I would poke my head out of the shower, it would stop and then turn itself on again after I started showering again. Other things would happen. Pictures on the wall would constantly go off kilter. The kitchen faucets would turn themselves on at full pressure. Milk would constantly go sour in the fridge a day after purchasing. Items would go missing only to sometimes turn back up exactly where they had originally been left. The doorbell would ring late at night and no one would be at the door. Footsteps and low mumbling would be heard always, always, starting at either 2.07 a.m., 2.37 a.m., or 3.07 a.m. Over the course of days or a week or two, it would increase in volume and strength slash activity and then subside to where the house would be quiet for a week or two. Fifteen years later, living near Seattle in a shared house with six other roommates, my bedroom was in the finished basement. One day I was home alone, wide awake, totally lucid and sober, folding laundry at the foot of my bed. From my peripheral vision, I saw a baseball-sized, solid ball, which looked to be made of glass, but was lit very brightly from within. In what seemed to be slow motion at the time, it floated at a fixed height from the ground, maybe four feet, and arced from the outside of my bedroom, through my doorway, and came right toward me. 
As it approached, I instinctively raised my arm in defense, and it appeared to go right through me, right at heart level, through my side where I had raised my left arm. And nothing came out the other side. I watched it as it approached me, both completely transfixed, bewildered, and disoriented. And it seemed to have a luminous, orange-yellow-gold swirling mass inside of it, almost like an illuminated crystal ball. It seriously looked solid and heavy, and there was and is no explanation for it. I've googled extensively in an attempt to find any other similar accounts of this happening, but I've never found anything. The most common type of paranormal activity is simply a feeling that something is near you, something you can't see or touch, but your body lights up with a sort of animal instinct. This story from Jeremy Schaefer is the definition of that feeling. In my senior year of high school, on what passes for a wintry Saturday afternoon in Alabama, some friends and I went exploring at an old cemetery. It wasn't big, maybe 60 or so yards across and situated in a clearing in the woods, just off a back road. Driving past, you probably wouldn't think the narrow path leading up to it was anything other than a service road to some utility station. We certainly didn't when we pulled off onto it one night a week earlier to check the tire on a friend's car and made this happy, if creepy, discovery. At the front of the graveyard, the path split and formed a circle near the edge of the woods and encompassed the cemetery. Right up front was a small mausoleum, empty save for some leaves and twigs, with a slight lean and no door. Next to it was a tall tree that left the place shady, even though it was otherwise a clear and sunny day. The graves themselves were sort of crammed in together and had no discernible pattern to their layout. Most had tiny markers, some even looked to be homemade, with streaked colors that might have been painted on writing but was illegible by then, though a handful had rather ornate headstones. One or two plots were covered with elaborate slabs, and a few had simple borders fashioned from bricks outlining the grave. None of the readable markers had dates past the 1920s. It wasn't overgrown, so it was easy to get around the place, though in some spots toward the middle were tricky to step over or between whatever was marking the graves. We spent an hour or so checking the place out, but it was starting to get late. As we were heading back to the path that led out to the main road in our car, the three of us noticed a spot just outside the path, wedged right at the edge of the woods. There was nothing really indicating it was a grave, no marker or slab or brick outline. 
The earth didn't look freshly turned or any different from the rest of the cemetery. But the three of us just knew it was where someone had been buried. With plenty enough daylight to check out one last grave, the three of us cheerfully turned towards it talkative about what it might be and why it wasn't marked. As we moved to step off the path, all three of us suddenly stopped speaking and froze in our tracks. It wasn't like hitting an invisible barrier and our bodies didn't lock up on a physical level. It was more of an instinctual thing. Deep down, we simply knew getting closer to that grave would be exceptionally unwise. We stood there, not even ten feet from the spot, silent and in mid-stride for the better part of a minute. One of us broke the silence, asking if either of us could move. I and my other friend answered that we couldn't. But as one, we all took a step back at that moment. None of us spoke for a while until I noted as casually as I could, that I had noticed a Wendy's not far from there. We all agreed that, why yes, we were quite suddenly very hungry and got back in the car with a much faster pace and a lot quieter than three teenage boys probably would be normally. Let's end the night with something extra freaky. Ever heard of black-eyed children? They are these spooky little bastards who try to gain entry into your car or house by saying they need to use the phone or need a ride. They have all black eyes. People say you almost feel like you're under a spell when you're around them, but you also feel like running for the hills as fast as you can. A.J. Blevins and his brother had a run-in with what may have been some of these black-eyed kids. It was 2004, Thanksgiving break, pretty late at night. My mom worked nights as a nurse, and it was just my brother and I in our house. The layout of the house had me and my brother's room right next to each other, only separated by a bathroom, with his room being on the front of the house and mine being on the back. It was a cookie-cutter home in a brand new subdivision, so there were only a few houses near us. So, to get to the point, we were close enough that if something was going on in his room, with both of our doors open, I could easily hear it. So we're playing World of Warcraft full tilt when all of a sudden we hear someone knocking on my brother's window in the front of the house. It sounded like several kids knocking. There were a lot of kids around the same age as my brother in the neighborhood who often came over, so them doing something like this would not be out of the ordinary, but due to the time it wouldn't be right. Me having a short fuse barked at my brother to tell them to piss off and go home. It's too late for them to come in or my brother to come out. Not to mention it was cold as hell outside. 
He begins to get up from his chair and to go to the front door when the doorbell starts to ring with an alarming speed. And at this point, I was very pissed off. When he made it to the door, I could hear that his tone went from also being annoyed to being confused. I got up from my computer and was ready to raise hell at whoever had been doing this, but when I got to the door, my brother was kind of standing there, dumbfounded, the smaller kid directly in front of the door, and another one standing a little farther out of view, somewhat in the shadows. The kid standing in front of the door was wearing a hoodie, and I will say right off the bat that I couldn't and never did get to see this kid's eyes or even look at his face. The light on the front porch was one of those cheap, shitty yellow bulbs that didn't give off much light, and the fact that it was encased in one of those also cheap and shitty glass houses with the foggy glass made it a very poor light source. Whenever I made it to the hallway that led to the front door, I went from a completely pissed off demeanor to almost being frozen in terror. I can't even say what it was about these kids that made me feel this way. But as soon as I saw them, I could just feel it in my damn bones that something about this was wrong. Really wrong. I had never felt that way in my life, and I didn't know how to deal with it. I was just paralyzed with fear. I can't stress enough how quickly this all went through my head, and this was just at the sight of them. Nobody had even had any time to say anything, as I had just rounded the corner to the hallway, and it just happened. My brother had the door open and kind of slinked off to the side so that I could walk up. I took a few steps toward the door and asked, What's the problem? Can I help you two with something? I even remember the feeling. Like I couldn't see this kid's face. But I knew he was looking directly at me and like through me. And his presence was imposing. It was just a kid around my brother's age and smaller physically, but he might as well have been a hulking giant with how small he made me feel. He didn't reply right away, but kind of took his time and said, we'd like to come in and use your phone. I was able to keep some of my senses about me and told them that no, it was late and my mom wouldn't like anyone in the house, and if they needed to, I could make a call for them. The way he responded was like he didn't really hear what I said. Again, he just said, I'd like to come in and call my parents. Again, I said no. Nobody was coming into the house. The kid that was out of view seemed finicky. He just seemed kind of high-strung not entirely sure how to describe it. He just kept repeating, come on, they aren't going to let us in. One last time, the kid at the door said, are you going to let us in? And I replied, no. He stood there for a few seconds and didn't say anything. Just standing there. 
he just turned and walked off. I reached over and slammed the door shut, and as soon as I did, I felt like this huge weight had been lifted off of me. Immediately, I locked the door, and my brother and I ran into his room to shut the light off to look out the window. And they were just gone. This made me panic as I thought to myself, oh shit, they might be trying to get into the backyard. I was so scared that I got our shotgun out of the broom closet and very slowly made it to my back door so that I could see into the backyard. There was nothing. Just an empty backyard. Since I had gotten the gun, I felt safer. I guess it gave me the courage to walk out the front door with my brother behind me to see if I could see them making their way down the road and again, just gone. I can still remember that night so vividly and how I felt. I had never and have never to this day felt the way I felt that night. And I have been in some very dangerous situations since then. I always wonder about what exactly would have happened had I let those kids come into our home. I hope you enjoyed this because me and my brother damn sure didn't. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed another episode of your true horror. I know I did. Remember, you can send your stories, fictional and non, to scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. Check out Care Of and use my offer code SLEEP. I have a Patreon. For my $5 and higher supporters, I'll send you a Scary to Sleep sticker. I'm also working on doing some more exclusive content for you. Currently, there is a Patreon-only guided nightmare that is only accessible by my patrons. My eternal thanks to this week's Patreon subscriber, and please forgive me, I am about to butcher your name, Kirsten Besserud? (laughs) Thank you so much, Kirsten. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at ScareYouToSleep. You can stalk my personal stuff at Shelby B. Scott. Join our Facebook group. Remember, if it's asking you to like, then it's just the page. In order to interact with past authors of the stories in the show and to discuss anything spooky with fellow listeners, make sure you're clicking join for the group. It'll ask you a couple questions just so Maddie and Rosemary know you're not a sex bot or a Bitcoin chiller. Join last profiler on the left to catch my live stream. If you can't make it on time, I believe Whitney keeps them up on the page so you can watch it later. Alright, now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Item number SCP-5186 SCP-7160 SCP-7533 Object class Euclid Keter Safe Special containment procedures 
spreading across the hemisphere and kicking up vast amounts of ash and dust. But the only thing I could hear was 7219 laughing. Do you remember your name? Counseling. Appointment update. I feel them again. Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. They're in my ears! Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. Nobody understands! SCP Archives is a weekly fiction podcast. Each episode, we dive into the strange, the unknown, and the... Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at scparchives.com.